Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough, coming to you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool program for you all today. I have no doubt you will learn, grow, and be inspired by today's show. Before we get into our main event, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and subscribe. Your likes and follows help ensure you won't miss any of our new shows, and it makes the algorithm gods happy, which helps us. So thanks for that. Also, be sure to visit our website, notrealart.com. Sign up for our newsletter to keep your finger on the pulse of everything we're doing here at Not Real Art for artists and art lovers. A lot of great stuff there. On the website, you'll get free educational videos. You can sign up for our artist grant for the chance to receive $2,000. You can buy affordable original contemporary art through our partnership with Sugar Press. And you can become a supporter through Patreon if you want. So be sure to check out our website today for all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Today's show is unique because we are talking to Bob Weir and Louise Glickman of Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. And you guys might be wondering, how the heck did Not Real Art end up in Asheville? Well, you might remember a few weeks ago when we spoke to Mary Farmer from Asheville. And a lot of cool things came out of that. And one of the cool things that came out of that was the fact that I got to hook up with Bob and Louise from Sandhill Artist Collective, a.k.a. Shaq. And we you know, started talking about all kinds of things. And so, of course, I invited them to come on the podcast to talk about what they're doing there in Asheville with artists. And of course, Sandhill Artist Collective is a 501c3 volunteer group of artists, art professionals, enthusiasts supporting the arts community there in Asheville. And I don't know about you, I haven't been to Asheville, although I've seen photos and talked to people, and it is a beautiful, beautiful place. I can't wait to get out there. It's spectacular, and it's an epicenter of the contemporary art and crafts movement here, certainly in the U.S. and around the world. That's world-class. And so I just was really looking forward to talking to Bob and Louise about the work that they're doing out there. We share so many of the same values and ethos. And in fact, I'm going to be going out there soon. We're going to be doing some other things. I think we're going to help them develop their own podcast, which will be cool. So stay tuned for that. But thought I'd have Louise and Bob on the show to hear about all the cool stuff that they're doing at Shack. Definitely check them online at sandhillartist.com. And without further ado, let's get into this episode with Bob and Louise. Bob Ware, Louise Glickman, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. I'm so honored that you guys took time out of your busy schedule way out there in Asheville, North Carolina, to sit down with us here at Not Real Art to talk about all the amazing things that are happening there in Asheville. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us this morning. Our pleasure. Yeah, it's very exciting for us to start doing this. So looking forward to it. 
Yes. Well, there's so much going on in Nashville. And I mean, you know, the truth of the matter is from an arts and culture perspective specifically, and, you know, in all candor, I'm like so many of my listeners, I think a neophyte at best when it comes to understanding what's happening in Asheville. Well, first of all, in all candor here and full transparency, I've never even been to Asheville, North Carolina. So (laughs) I have been to North Carolina. I have not been to Asheville. I really look forward to getting out there. Now, I do happen to know that you guys are not necessarily native to the area. Talk to me about Asheville. How did you guys end up there? Louise, you want to go first? Sure. Well, I am originally from New Orleans. I owned a marketing and public relations company there for many years, as well as a restaurant. And my niche, if you will, was cultural tourism development. So I knew very little about Asheville, except I found out that the state of North Carolina, at the time that I was considering a move, which was around 2000 had more funding for cultural tourism development than any state in America. So that piqued my interest. I also lived in Jackson, Mississippi for five years, working on some cultural projects there and some economic development work. So being a Southern girl, raising my family there, and always interested in art and writing, I very much wanted to go to a place that had a lot of active artists and also an intellectual environment and was lucky enough to discover Asheville and moved here in 2001 and have not been disappointed for a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's amazing. I mean, is it a fair comparison to say that Asheville is sort of the Austin of your region? We like to say that Austin is the Texan version of Asheville. Of Asheville. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Fair point, Bob. Thank you for clarifying that. I'll tell you, we do have a large music scene here, as well as a large art scene. And this is the home territory of Moog. Right. Oh, the synthesizer company. Yeah. Yes. And that's been very important here. And of course, Appalachian music is historic. Right. Well, but so Moog, Bob, was it his first name, Bob? Bob Moog? Yes, Bob Moog. And actually, I think it rhymes with Vogue. Moog, right. Bob Moog. That's right. And thank you for that. And, you know, it's a small world. A colleague of mine, a filmmaker, Hans Fielerstadt, shout out Hans. Hans and I were good friends. We talk almost every day. He produced a documentary about Bob Moog called Moog. I bet Hans has some experience in Nashville that maybe I need to talk to him about. There's also, I should mention, that in downtown Asheville, which has exploded with galleries and museums and all kinds of wonderful things, right in the middle of it is the Moog Museum. Yeah, their shop is just a couple of blocks off of the downtown area. Apparently, they've got pretty interesting stuff. About a year ago, they actually auctioned off one of the classic Moog synthesizers as a little fundraiser here in town for the arts. Oh, that's so great. Do you know how much they raised? I don't. Hopefully, it was a lot of money. That thing was, that thing's a rare antiquity. (laughs) 
you know, I mean, modern antiquity, if there's such a thing. That's very cool. Well, okay. So I want to hear from Bob real quick, Bob, where Bob, how did you find yourself in Asheville? I believe it, it, maybe I heard a little birdie told me that at one point you were teaching out here on the left coast of Los Angeles, maybe in Santa Monica. So where exactly are you from and how did you end up in Asheville? Well, I started out in western New York State on the Pennsylvania border south of Buffalo, lived uh, right on the edge of a forest. So my childhood was running around through the woods all day. But we gradually worked our way westward and ended up in California by my mid-teenage years. I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, and my wife was, and we graduated from there in the early mid-70s and went down to Los Angeles. Kathy was in food manufacturing, and L.A. is a very big city for uh, food production. And I ended up bailing out of a graduate program in English literature to become a photographer. So I spent about 20 years as a freelance photographer doing a lot of editorial work, portraiture, commercial work, corporate stuff, and then started teaching in the mid-90s, initially in San Francisco at the Academy of Art University and then very shortly afterwards at Santa Monica College. I ended up tenured at Santa Monica for 16 years, and also at that same time did a little bit of uh, adjunct teaching out at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. So most of our careers, both my wife and I, was uh, L.A.-based. You know, it was a lot of fun. It's a great city for the resources for both of our occupations, but it kept getting more and more crowded. You can certainly attest to that. And we were nearing retirement age and starting to look around for something a little bit prettier. We kind of had water and mountains on our list. And my sister-in-law lives about an hour from Asheville over in Johnson City, Tennessee. And we visited her and she brought us to Asheville on an overnight trip. And the minute we hit downtown Asheville, the whole Berkeley vibe kicked in and we said, oh, yeah, we're back. And uh, (laughs) so we started looking very seriously online and decided to do a a Thanksgiving visit. My wife said, let's look at houses. And I said, let's bring our checkbook. And that's how it all happened. And then not too long after that, you started the first drum circle, right? Uh, (laughs) I would like to say that I did, but no, that is a long (laughs) tradition here. Yeah, fantastic. Very cool. Well, I mean, you guys are doing, I was already, the cool kids call it FOMO. I was already already having FOMO vis-a-vis, you know, Asheville, because of course, you know, I know I'm missing out on so much and I so look forward to going out there, but hearing these stories just, may, you know, makes me want to get out there that much sooner. And I look forward to that. And I, any place, you know, we've all stumbled into those places, right? Where suddenly we realize we're in a hotbed for goodness, you know, a hotbed for cultural currency, a hotbed for cultural innovation, you know, artists, musicians, what have you, you know, who are by their very nature innovating and pushing that envelope for a community. But these places also have a lot of times deep roots and there's real history there. And I mean, Asheville is no exception. I mean, there's so much amazing, as I'm learning, so much amazing history. Take us back a little bit to the extent that you can or want to, and I've spent a lot of time, this isn't college, we don't, this isn't history class, but I do want to better understand a little bit about the beginnings of that region. Well, as an art center, it's quite remarkable, but also based in a lot of history. So there are three very well-known craft schools within an hour's drive of Asheville. One is the internationally famous Penland School of Craft. And then close by in Tennessee is the Aramont School. And then south of us 
is the John C. Campbell Folk School. These have very long roots here, but also they are based in the economics of the Depression and even before the Depression, starting off with weaving, teaching women to weave in particular to support their families. Then there's also the Cherokee culture. And of course, that's very critical here now because of casinos, there's a lot of money in the Cherokee community. But for our purposes, the craft is just remarkable. And that is called the Kuala Boundary. So that's also part of the culture of the work. Asheville is known particularly for crafts, and this is not knitting and tatting. You know, this is not your grandmother's doilies. This is really very high and glorious craft. Chihuly learned to blow glass here at the Penland School, for example. We have a gallery here called Momentum Gallery, 15,000 square feet of incredible art and a lot of craft. And Chihuly is now represented here in Asheville. And then the Biltmore Estate. So the Vanderbilt family, that's the largest privately owned estate in America and quite something to see. But Edith Vanderbilt was incredibly supported, not only of craft, but also of the economic development of Asheville. And that's really where a lot of our spiritual roots came from here in the mountains. It's very magical. When you step off the airplane, you feel it immediately. And she also supported a lot of textile crafts for women. Yeah, the uh, state of North Carolina has been a very important state in the development of the United States going all the way back to its founding. In fact, there was a declaration of independence, if you will, called Mecklenburg Documents that was actually signed several months prior to the Declaration of Independence. So the movement here in, in the state uh, has always been very dynamic. And then, of course, North Carolina was the center of gold mining up until the gold rush in California. That's where you get that line in the song Clementine about a, a miner from Carolina. And it became a major banking center between gold and the, and the cotton business. And that's mostly sort of the eastern side of the state around the capital cities, the, the triangle around Raleigh, Durham. And the western part of the state's very different. It's very much, it's very mountainous. Something like 60% of the land in western North Carolina has a slope of greater than 30 degrees, so it's almost impossible to farm. So the economics are very, very different when you move off of the coastal and, and the so-called Piedmont areas up into the mountains here. It's gorgeous here. It's just stunningly beautiful. I think the first week we moved here, I was going back and forth to the recycling center, dropping off cardboard boxes. And the old guy who was in charge, we started talking and he said he'd been in the military and been all over the world, but there ain't no place like the mountains. And it really gets to you. Asheville sits in a little bowl surrounded by Blue Ridge Mountains. The Blue Ridge Parkway runs right uh, along the edge of the city. And it is an astonishing place for its beauty. And you can see why it would attract a lot of people pretty aesthetically inclined. At this point, the joke here is that a third of the people in Asheville are artists, another third of them are musicians, and it's hard to talk to anybody here who isn't involved in the arts. So it's pretty cool. 
The other thing about that, Scott, is it's very rare to find someone who's originally from Asheville. So, so many of the people here actually have come here and never left because they love it. But Western North Carolina, in terms of, first of all, outdoor activity, climbing the Blue Ridge Parkway goes right past Asheville. So there's a lot of incredible outdoor activity. But we're talking about an area that is the size of Maryland. So Western North Carolina itself, with all of these mountains and crafts and artists living throughout, it's the size of the state of Maryland. Amazing. So essentially, it's a bit of a small state that artists are inhabiting there. It is. And believe me, the people in the central and the eastern part of the state think we're from somewhere else as well. (laughs) We're the most progressive part of the state. Yeah, of course. Artists are socially enlightened beings <laughs> many times, and they're progressive by nature. You're probably the only blue county in a red state, yeah? Yeah, that's the joke. More or less. Dot of blue. Right, right, right. Well, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. It's sort of not unlike the Northern California, Southern California distinctions. Both part of the same state, but there's a very different flavor. Sure, sure. Now, listen, so you guys teamed up to form Sand Hill Artist Collective. I mean, that's part of the re- one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show. Yes, we want to honor and celebrate Asheville because that's where you guys are based. And Asheville is such an amazing place. And and personally, I'm so curious about it and can't wait to get there. But also, I wanted to you know have you guys on the show because we share common values. I mean, everything that we do here at Not Real Art, which is a production of my company, Crew West Studio. Everything we do as an organization is is really meant to support artists, empower artists, help artists tell their stories and promote their work through storytelling and any number of things. But the Sandhill Artist Collective, aka Shack, I feel like we share values because you guys are also working hard to support each other and promote your artists and their work, not just in your region, but of course, nationally and internationally. Louise, tell us about Shack, Sand Hill Artist Collective. I mean, what are the roots? How did you start? What problems are you guys trying to solve? What exactly is Sand Hill Artist Collective? Well, I tell you, this has been remarkable as a journey for Bob and I, who actually didn't know each other until I started Shack, and we live literally around the corner from each other. We live in an area that is just on the outside western edge of Asheville, and it is considered maybe semi-rural, but it's 12 minutes from downtown. We live on a lake called Biltmore Lake. I have vision problems since birth, and after a number of automobile accidents, my family laid down the law and asked me to stop driving. And I have been very involved in not only the arts community, but the broader community in many, many ways, including as a fundraiser, which is my background. So the idea of staying home was really creeping me out. And I decided, because I'm now doing studio art in retirement, that I wanted to meet other creatives in my area. So I basically called a meeting at our little clubhouse that we have here in our community. And the first meeting, 23 people showed up. And two months later, 43 people showed up. 
And at that point, Bob and I became friends. I'm pretty good as a networker and connector type. And Bob has the incredible technical skills that I completely lack. And we were faced with COVID, the inability to actually get this group together. We decided that really what the group wanted to do was a studio tour where they invited people out to come walk through our studios. We couldn't do that. So we said, let's expand the area and let's do this virtually. And so that's how it began. And we do a blog once a month. Our website is sandhillartist.com. We include artists and creatives from five zip codes around Biltmore Lake. So it's a fairly large area, but it was an artistic desert, really, in some ways, because it's not in downtown Asheville. It's a little off the fast track. And now we've created all of this excitement. We had these virtual gallery tours that we did over the Christmas holidays. And now we have over 500 people nationally and in our region all involved in our blog and our activities. And that's in one year. What Louise was just saying about surveying a particular set of zip codes with Jack here, Asheville is not that large. You can drive from one side of Asheville to the other in 20 or 25 minutes here. But there is a river, the French Broad, that runs through the center of the city around which it was built. Asheville went through some really hard times beginning with the Depression here. It's the only city in the country that actually paid off all of the loans that the government made, which meant that until the late 70s, early 80s or so, the city of Asheville basically had no money. They say that downtown Asheville was a pretty scary place until a bunch of artists actually got together and started to build some small studio spaces. And the downtown really got revitalized beginning in the 90s uh, with art as sort of its center. But that's also meant that the old warehouses and factories that were located along the river and largely abandoned became the studios. And, And now... It's a tourist mecca, if you will. It's uh, the River Arts District. And so downtown Asheville, the east side of Asheville, what had very well represented as our side of town is starts to get rural pretty quickly. We've got a lot of talented artists out here, but there really isn't any exhibition space for them on this side of town. So our idea was we would build this online community out here and give people a platform to show their work. And then once we can all get together, we'll start figuring out how to have in-person events featuring the art of people who live out here. That's really the originating and the current goal of, of Shack. Yeah, no, I think that's super smart. And, you know, one of the things that's been interesting, of course, is that, you know, the art world, as we've known, I'm speaking broadly here now, but generally speaking, the art world has been reluctant to embrace online digital experiences as a way of promoting and selling artists work. And there's all kinds of, you know, reasons for that, both practical and dubious. 
But because of COVID, they were forced, right? So many galleries, what have you, were forced to go online. The fact of the matter is online solves a scale issue. I mean, you know, it's so hard for artists to scale beyond their local markets or their regional markets. And galleries are typically serving their local or regional markets, of course, unless it's a you know, maybe some blue chip gallery that has an international collector's space or something. In your very specific example, artists in Asheville, they rely on tourism for people to come. But how then do we reach those people who maybe aren't and can't travel to Nashville or would like the art anyway? They I mean, it's like, oh, I don't need to go to Asheville to appreciate this amazing piece of ceramic or whatever, right? What you guys are doing is wonderful because you're helping artists reach beyond their local marketplace and scale, you know, nationally and internationally because their work is universal and would transcend any local marketplace if only someone knew that it was there. Well, it's very interesting how a number of things have come together to make this happen. First of all, Asheville is a university town. So the University of North Carolina, Asheville, has a very strong presence here, and particularly in the arts, where they have developed some very innovative studio space that is all STEAM-related and run by a close friend, Brent Skidmore, who's also a sculptor. But they are doing a lot of work creating craft using digital means and tools. And so they're very advanced. I should also mention that UNCA had something called the Center for Retirement. And many years ago, back in the early 2000s, they had conferences here on how to retire. And so people who had very busy lifestyles came here to understand better what was going to happen to them in retirement. And they started walking the mountains and seeing how great it was. And they said, well, I don't think we have to go any further. We'll just stay right here. So that that had a huge influence as well. And then these three art schools, that's happened. And now we are in a situation where We have to be very careful about our conservation, our environment, and our travel programs. We did a survey after our virtual gallery tours over the holidays, and everyone who replied said they couldn't wait to get to Asheville. So the minute people hear about it, there's this influx, and it's supported by the travel group here, which has all the hotel motel tax money and supports how this is further developed as a place for culture and art. It strikes me that you guys are in a bit of a pickle, though, too, because on one hand, you want the tourism money, right? But it's probably given a choice preferable if people leave and go home. <laughs> I wonder about the development, the gentrification part of it. It's happening everywhere. And so many cities I travel to, I see this happening. I mean, what's happening there in terms of the slippery slope that is development? That's a real problem for the community here. As I had implied earlier when I was talking about how steep the mountains are here, this is not a 
naturally wealthy area. A lot of the native residents here, I'm sure they resent people like Louise and me who have moved in from big cities and you know, we've not only grew up with outside money we had, but a different cultural viewpoint. There's certainly a lot of concern that's expressed pretty much everywhere you go here in town that this gentrification process is going to continue. There was just a, a story that was published, a study as indicating that Asheville will probably grow by 50,000 residents in the next 30 years. And considering that it's a city whose population is less than 200,000, that's huge. Big companies like Pratt & Whitney are starting to come in here. Amazon is building a distribution center, unfortunately, almost in our backyard. So it's happening. It's excluding a lot of people who don't have the skill sets that those high-tech jobs are requiring. And we're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. In its way, these craft arts may help a bit. A lot of the things that we call craft here are definitely things that developed in the classical Appalachian times here. And they're just being taken to a much higher degree, but by the same people or the same descendants of the same people who originated these arts. I want to add here, too, there's another thing very steep, and that is the housing prices here. Asheville has the highest housing costs in North Carolina. And now, if you can find a house, we're starting to reach L.A. prices. That stems the tide a little bit in terms of influx. But we also have a very dedicated group of leaders in this city that are tackling this. I've just been asked to sit on a committee to help with some of these urban development issues, which is something I did when I was involved in the mayor's office in New Orleans on the revitalization of downtown New Orleans. So I have a background in this We'll be working with others to try to control the growth here in Asheville. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing artists have a lot to say about this issue there. Yeah, the other thing that's affecting the whole country, of course, is climate change. And Asheville has been predicted to be one of the least affected areas, both in terms of climate and the consequent economic development in the country here. A study was just published for every county in the United States on ranking where they will fall in terms of displacement in one form or another. And Asheville made out very, very well. We're among the 12% of the country that's not going to be very affected by it. We'll see our weather warm up and we'll probably get more flooding and all, but nothing like what's going to happen throughout the southwest and the coast. So that will probably drive a lot of people here in the future as well, kind of a safe haven. Bob, you'll be happy to know I'm going to edit all of that out of this so that people don't know <laughs> anything we can do to protect. <laughs> no, but it's true. California and Oregon, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Joking aside, these are serious issues and all communities are being impacted one way or another. Who would have thought that a winter storm would take the state of Texas out? But we can't say we weren't warned, Al Gore, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, it's fascinating to, to hear. But I mean, artists are they're oftentimes they're on the leading edge of these issues, whether it's social justice or disparities of equity in terms of housing costs or whatever. And it's fascinating to hear what you guys are doing and the artists are, are doing there to, to try to manage this growth. I'm going to go back to something that Louise mentioned a few minutes ago, and that was our virtual gallery tours that we did just before the Christmas holidays. 
we have been funding Shack out of our own pockets here, and we decided that moving forward, we needed a little bit of outside money coming in. So we conceived this idea of enlisting 10 galleries in the area here and doing online virtual tours and selling tickets for those. It was very daunting. I had never really done video before. And so this was uh, going zero to 60 in about three weeks' time. We had a lot of fun. And boy, we saw some amazing stuff here. The nice thing about this area is it's not just like galleries, but it's a lot of historical stuff, too. We've got Black Mountain College just outside of town. And if you are a Jasper John's fan, a Merce Cunningham fan, a Buckminster Fuller fan, you know, that's the place to go and, and see this amazing group of people that came together for just a little over a decade here after World War II. And, you know, they had a huge effect on American culture everywhere. And boy, it's, it's right here. And there's a nice little museum with some really smart people to talk to you about it. And there's a craft center here that has just done some extraordinary work. And so we got to see a ton of stuff here that honestly even we didn't know about. We would invite somebody to tell us about their operation and then the next thing you knew we were learning things and over fixed. So it was very cool. We got people from across the country to take a look and that hopefully, you know, we enticed some people to come and visit us. Um, and buy art. Support artists buy art. But the other thing that was really unbelievable about all this is we're still small enough that each one of those galleries did their own programming. So they did their own programming for this gallery tour. So it's not like you're going to go on there and just get a walkthrough. You're going to hear history. You're going to hear about the artists. You're going to learn a lot about the curatorial experience and how they represent and who they represent that made people feel very close. It was an intimate experience. And they're available online now. You can watch them all for free by going to Sand Hill Artists on YouTube. And they were designed to be an hour each that you could kick back after work, drink some wine, and watch art in Nashville. Fantastic. Well, that's another great example of how you guys are helping to reach beyond, right? And leverage technology so that people can learn and support artists in the arts, you know, from the comfort of their own home, no matter that, you know, if that's Seattle or Hong Kong. But that's what it takes. Cause I mean, I feel like, and this is a big part of what motivates us in the work that we do. There are a few things that you can get artists to agree on. Artists are not a monolithic community, which is why we love them. Very idiosyncratic individualists, which we love. But the one thing, if there is one thing I've, I've noticed that artists tend to agree on is that, boy, they'd really love more help telling their stories and promoting their work to a bigger, broader audience. That's a real need and a real problem that's got to be addressed. And you guys are addressing it in a very relevant way vis-a-vis -vis the artists in your community. Well, Bob and I are artists ourselves, and my husband is also an artist. And so we are very familiar with what artists, particularly emerging artists, face. And that is why we love Not Real Art and what it does. It feels like we're in home in this space, because there are some very famous artists here, but for the most part, you would call this emerging or mid-level 
art and craft. Well, and, you know, I appreciate you saying that, Louise. Thank you. One of the reasons why I, you know, respect you guys and I'm so grateful to have you on and, and look forward to doing this again and again is because, of course, the ethos behind Not Real Art, I think, aligns beautifully with everything that's going on there. I mean, and quite frankly, you know, at the risk of putting too fine a point on it, historically, arts and crafts, and to the extent that arts and crafts are part of the Asheville art scene, the fine art world of New York is, or London or what have you may have tended to look down their nose at arts and crafts as not being real art. And so, of course, we know better, but that's part of the reason why I, I'm so grateful to have gotten to know you guys and have connected because I feel like our values are very similar in, in helping lift up artists. I've spent most of my marketing career doing that. Back a long time ago, I was involved in creating the cultural redevelopment and rebirth of New Orleans when I was working with the mayor, and that was Moon Landrew, that was the father of the more recent Mitch Landrew, who was also mayor. New Orleans, iconically, was a drunk hanging around a lamppost on Bourbon Street. It wasn't me. I promise it wasn't me. (laughs) I mean, allegedly it was, but it wasn't. I'm not telling any secrets on that front. (laughs) I grew up in New Orleans. I raised my kids there, and we were down in the French Quarter at a very early age. But now people know about the diversity and the international cultures of New Orleans, and we came to the conclusion that that's really what we had to sell was our diversity and our history. And now people really know it. And one of the reasons I came to Asheville is because I could see where this was going here. I felt that I could be of help. I felt like I could be at home. And I felt because my family's lived in New Orleans since the 1820s. I felt like I had a perspective of living in a very old place that had tremendous creative potential. That's such an important point you're making. And I mean, having been to New Orleans and certainly that area of the country, southern Louisiana, is its own world. I mean, it is absolutely just unto itself a unique, one of the culturally most diverse, richest, exotic parts of the United States uh, that I've ever been to. And you saw some of those attributes, some of those tendencies there in Nashville. I did. Not only the opportunity to express creatively and culturally to the country what Asheville is, but also to preserve it and to make sure that it doesn't go away. We have a lot of wonderful stories to tell. And of course, storytelling is one of the traditions here in the mountains. The art of orating, if that's a word, (laughs) oratory, (laughs) is so rich there, isn't it? And deep. Yeah, in fact, the National Storytelling Center is is about uh, about an hour away in uh, in Jonesboro, which is a gorgeous little town just across the Tennessee line. So we've got a number of resident storytellers that live in our community. That's an amazing history as well. Incredible. Incredible. When he's not busy doing shack, is very involved with the Chattaloochee culture and history. Yeah, Chattaloochee is this beautiful little valley in the easternmost part of the Great Smoky Mountains uh, National Park. It's a little valley. It's about four miles long and a couple hundred yards wide. And 
till the Park Service kicked everybody out in 1930. It was the most populous and the most prosperous region in the, the Smokies. It has this amazing history. It's full of preachers and crazy people escaping gambling debts and Cherokee Indians using it as hunting grounds. And as I say, it's a beautiful place. And it's the reintroduction area for elk, Wapiti, here. So I volunteer out there keeping animals and people safe from each other. But it's just a place that I, I really love. And you hear these stories. There are a couple of historic homes that have been left as sort of open museums. People are just entrusted not to vandalize them. But there are still some very old people who spent their childhoods there. And they will come out once a year for big gatherings. And so every day that I'm out there, I will meet somebody who's got some tie that goes all the way back to the early part of the 20th century or relatives that fought in the Civil War and one of the cool things about moving here from L.A. is that this part of the country has an entirely different history. Spending 50 years in Los Angeles, I know a lot about Mexican culture and the gold rush and, and the, the California becoming a state and, and the water wars of the West and whatnot, but not very much at all about this area. And you come back here, and it's an entirely different set of history. California is the other side of the world. And that, that whole Mexican-American history barely applies here. It's a whole new relearning experience. Yeah, I mean, and that gets to why it's so hard to govern this damn country, right? Oh, yes. Because it's so diverse and it's so different in terms of where you go. I mean, it's a massive place. It's a massive country with so many worlds within or countries within this country, right? And so it ends up becoming very challenging from a governance perspective. But, you know, culturally, I think, you know, we forget that sometimes that we're not monolithic, really, at the end of the day. A fellow that I was talking with uh, while I was on duty with the Park Service out in Catalucci, and we we're just telling yarns to each other. And, and at one point, then he goes, Oh, those damn liberals. And I said, Hey, Berkeley, 1970, you're looking at him. But here I am protecting your family. And the guy laughed and he said, Well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The moral of that story is, right? Let's keep our sense of humor, people. Oh, we're yeah. all in this together, whether we like each other or not. It'd be a lot easier and better if, if we could learn to respect each other, if nothing else, for our differences and start to understand each other and talk with each other so that we can understand each other because you can't empathize without listening. I have found over the years that I was very involved in New Orleans trying to create a jazz park. That was one of my projects through my consulting firm. And I have found that History, music in particular, these things are like glue. And the art motivates conversations. So if you go into a gallery that is intimate and has the right kind of managers and galleryists, which we have here, we have incredible amount of talent, it spurs conversations at a different level. And I found that this is very useful in crossing boundaries. Oh, yeah. I couldn't agree more. The power of music, the power of art, the power of dance, the power of creativity is transcendent and is a unifier. If we could be, be a bit more deliberate and clever about it all, we might be able to just address uh, some of what ails us. You know, I couldn't help when on January 6th when 
a horrific event happened on Capitol Hill. I just wondered, like, how many of those folks studied art? <laughs> you know, it's like if they had only just colored more, would they be <laughs> would they be rioting? You know, like, and I got to believe that a little more coloring might have helped. Well, Bob and I are showing our work together here in the River Arts District right now. And we have gotten a lot of work done during COVID. So I have found and have found from talking to others that a lot of people's art is not only reflective of what's happened during COVID, but that they've spent more time because that has been their solace, their meditative practice to get through some of this. Yeah, no, it's been interesting talking to artists myself. Some have found themselves being quite productive while others have said, no, I can't. <laughs> I got to wait till it's all over for me to process how I'm feeling into something that expresses it all. And so it is interesting how this time has impacted people's inspiration and their cultural output, which is you know, to each their own. I mean, everybody's you know, walking their path in a very personal way. But you guys are both artists, as you just said. I want to better understand the art that you make. And I want to also understand how moving to Asheville changed your art. Bob, you want to start? Because I mean, you were out here in LA doing all the fancy glitzy stuff. You didn't cop to being paparazzi. So I'm going to assume that you didn't swim in the sewer with the- Actually, I floated on top of it. <laughs> oh, you floated on it. Okay, good for Seriously, you. Seriously, my, my very first client was Women's Wear Daily and I was shooting Hollywood parties for them. <laughs> that was actually something that I did all along. I rather got to enjoy it. It was a fun way of meeting the movers and shakers in town. And it was relatively easy work, but I always was on a side. I mean, it was working for Women's Wear or W or L Magazine or Harper's Bazaar and whatnot. So I was the guy in the, the photographer in the Italian tuxedo on the guest list. Not a bad gig if you can get it. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't on the sidewalk yelling, Liz, Liz over here. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, the thing for me was that I seem to be able to do only one thing at a time in my life here. So when I was doing assignment photography, I was doing assignment photography and I wasn't really doing anything for myself. When I was teaching, that was 75 or 80 hours a week. I was a teacher for a decade and a half. Moving to Asheville gave me an opportunity to pick up a camera and do things for myself, which is actually kind of intimidating. I like assignment work. Uh, the parameters are defined. You're, you're solving specific problems for clients, and it's problem solving. But to just be doing your own stuff for your own motivations and trying to gauge not whether it's serving its purpose in any commercial sense, but whether it's sort of doing its job aesthetically... That's a whole new ballgame. So that and the fact that I'm actually fairly introverted here, I've spent the last seven years or so just kind of perfecting a craft that I supposedly was already good at. And I turned to landscape work, nature photography as my outlet here. One of the things is that I have a, a dog who loves to go for walks. So every day we go for a walk and I just carry a camera with me everywhere and I count on paying attention to what's around me and making interesting photos from it. So, so I'm actually, for the first time in my life, showing my work publicly here and attempting to sell it. So fingers crossed if people will enjoy it. But I think that I've gotten to a point where I'm, I'm pretty good. What about your gear? What are you shooting with? You know, I'm almost hesitant to answer that question because I understand that, that when people say, wow, you must have a great camera, you know, what, what camera do you use? They're, they're trying to say, I really like your work. 
but I don't really care what equipment I have. If you give me a shoebox, I can punch a hole in one end of it and make a pretty good photo. That question is like going to a really good dinner party. And at the end where the conversation was great and the food was wonderful, you thank the hostess by telling her that you think she must have a wonderful stove. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's so great. The gear I use is the stuff that I'm comfortable carrying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I bring it up and I agree with you 100%. You know, I bring it up in part because I know some people like to geek out on that stuff. But I also bring it up, you know, and it resonates what you're saying, because I was talking to an artist the other day out here in L.A., Stephen Levy. Shout out, Stephen. He fell into photography. He sort of came up very contemporary stuff. He exclusively shoots on an iPhone. That's what he shoots on. You know, the high. that's all he does. And his stuff's really interesting and beautiful to look at. And he was telling a story about when he had his one man show uh, a couple of years ago, whenever it was, and There was a gentleman who loved this one piece. Stephen was saying he absolutely was going to buy it. It was a kind of a done deal. And then the guy asked the question, well, what do you shoot with? And Stephen admittedly made the mistake. He said, and I made the mistake of telling him that I shoot exclusively on an iPhone. And then not only did he not buy it, he got antagonistic and aggressive about the fact that it's not real art, that he's not a real art. I mean, it got ugly pretty quickly. So yeah, don't tell people what you use. <laughs> you know, it's none of their business. The funny thing about that is that the iPhone, it's a better piece of equipment than photographers had for the first 170 years of, of the Exactly. Journey. Yeah, yeah. There's an old story about Eisenstadt having his first exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art and a man with a little boy in tow at the opening asks Eisenstadt what camera he used to shoot it with. And Eisenstadt says, well, mostly a Leica. And the man turns to his little son and says, well, there, Timmy, I'll buy you a Leica and you can take pictures just like Mr. Eisenstadt. (laughs) 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 It doesn't work that way. Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I know. I know. If it weren't for people, right? They're trying to compliment you. It's no, just, I, I know. It's I a know, very funny yeah. way of doing it. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's also interesting because on the one hand, though, we also support the idea that people put tools in their hands and make stuff, right? And you want to know what the tools are that the pros are using, right? On some level. Anyway, it's all very funny. Louise, how about you? Tell us about your art and your practice and, and how moving to Asheville has helped you evolve as an artist. Well, one of the ways that Bob and I do cross over, creatively speaking, is I started off in the world of fashion as well. I lied about my age at 14 to get a job at a very sophisticated clothing, private clothing boutique in New Orleans. And I always loved to How many years did you lie, Louise? I'm still lying about my age. I mean. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, aren't we all, right? Yes. Right. My doctor tells me that for me, 50 is the new 60, but that's based on my x-rays. Anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go right ahead. So anyway, I went on to study fashion design and later went to New York doing retail marketing until the Vietnam War came along and quickly moved back to New Orleans where my husband was able to get into reserve unit. From there, I did work in the mayor's office and ultimately started my own marketing company and was very involved in the community. And so the art had to go by the wayside, although I hired a lot of artists 
I had a lot of artists who worked on my staff and my projects and that kind of thing. So I became more of an art director. But I wanted to get back to doing my own art, studio art. And part of the idea of moving to Asheville was actually to do that. But I, a busy person, I'm very interested in a lot of things, and I needed a way to calm down enough to actually get in the studio. And so I started practicing Ikebana, which is Japanese flower design. I'm very interested in Japanese culture. And this was my segue back into a studio practice. And beyond the design aspects of Ikebana is also that you're looking at nature all of the time. You're looking very closely at flowers, but you're looking at the land in which they grow, the colors of the various times of the year. I grew up in a place that didn't have seasonal changes. So this was all very fascinating to me here in North Carolina. And I also travel now when I can, when it's not COVID. So a lot of the cultural influences of growing up in New Orleans and traveling all over the world were very important for me to express. So my work has centered on that. It's mixed media work. I use my own photography. I'm incorporating more and more textiles. And I also am working on some special designs that I call quilted landscapes, where I actually collect leaves and put them directly into the work, into my work as patterns. And I sew the leaves as well. So I'm back to the textiles and using the photography and what I see as I travel and hike. This is really good news for me because the other day I was wearing my suit and I had a leaf fall off of it, but I don't know how to sew the leaf back on. So <laughs> now, now I know. Now, I know now you know who to call. You You'll me. have to come to Asheville for me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I need to learn how to sew a leaf on. No, that sounds amazing. Tell me a little bit more about the Japanese. What's the uh, Ikemon? Is that what you said it was it's called? It's called Ikebana. It's thousands of years old. When you go to a wedding in the United States, you see this profusion of flowers, right? When you go to Japan, you'll see that they use very few flowers and leaves, but the design is spectacular, very simple. And what it's allowed me to do is to build my art practice down to the very simplest common denominator, the materials that I select, and particularly the positive and negative space in the design, the composition is very critical. And I learned that through Japanese flower design. Incredible. Yeah, that's fantastic. Kind of a parallel between my work and Louise's here, this idea of trying to strip things back to essentials here. It was something that I always experienced as a commercial photographer. You would have a tendency to start a shoot with a whole bunch of props, and by the end of the day, they were all pushed over in the corner, and you were down to just you know the one thing that, that was critical. And it was very interesting as a teacher because I had a number of students over the years from the Middle East, and their sense of aesthetics is often very intricate, especially from places like Iran, where the geometry of designs in mosques and whatnot is spectacular. 
but these were young people who wanted to make it as photographers in, in America or in Western Europe. There was this constant coaxing of these students to make it simpler, strip it down, strip it down. You know, at the beginning of a program, they would have a tendency to be putting as much stuff into a picture as they possibly could. And so over the course of multiple semesters, you would sort of wean them back to this very sparse aesthetic. It's certainly in the commercial world dominant uh, with us. I have found that that appeals to me, that stripping back of things. I've always been curious as to how little can you have in a photograph and still have a good, compelling photograph. One of the focuses of my work here is it's not epic landscape. It's very small things. You know, something in the woods that catches the corner of my eye here will, will stop me. And it's my job to figure out what was it that I saw what thing needs to be expressed here. And I would say that the big difference coming from California is, you know, you have these wonderful, you have this wonderful surfing weather all the time. But here, walking through the landscape, every single day is different. The woods are not the same on Thursday as they were on Wednesday, whether it's the light or the sprouting of the leaf. And so it's these tiny little nuances that are catching my attention. And it's fun. That's fantastic. It reminds me of that old, I wish I could figure out who said this. I've heard it attributed to a few different people, Thelonious Monk being one of them, although I don't think he said it, but it's this statement that says anybody can take a simple idea and make it complex, but it takes real genius to take a complex idea and make it simple. And this distillation that you're talking about resonates with me. I love that when you see things sort of boil down to their essence. I used to tell my clients, if you want me to write a grant, I'll be happy to do it, but it's going to be a lot less expensive to write a grant than it's going to be to give you a slogan or a logo or a brand or just a few words, a motto. It's always harder to distill down and get it right than it is to write or talk. Exactly. Who was the writer that said that? You're probably thinking of Blaise Pascal who apologized for writing a long letter. He didn't have time to write a short one. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. I love that. I love that. It could have been shorter, but I didn't have enough time. That's right. That's right. Oh, my gosh. So good. Well, Louise Glickman and Bob Ware, I'll tell you what, you guys are awesome human beings. I'm so grateful to know you and to have you on the the podcast here. You took uh, your busy, busy folks and you took the time to sit down with us and share the goodness that is Shaq and Asheville and all the positive energy and great things that are happening there. As we sign off today, what are some parting words? What should people know as we sign off here? What would you like to leave us with today? Well, We've been thrilled at how far we have gotten in year one, and we have exciting programs that are being structured, tailored now as we're getting more and more out into the public. What we have learned is that we have an incredible amount of talent in these five zip codes. And many people have asked, why are we called Sand Hill? Artist Collective. Well, Sand Hill is the road that pretty much goes through most of these zip codes or connects these zip codes. So not realizing that we were going to become this national phenomena, we just named it after the street that ran through our neighborhoods, you know. 
But now our neighborhood is national and our market is national in terms of drawing attention to the creative people in the western part of our county. So I'd like people to follow us. We do a blog monthly. It's free. So all you have to do is go to sandhillartists.com. We introduce you to three artists each month. And we also provide commentary and news that is important anywhere that you live. It's useful information. It has to do with collectors and people who frame art and people who are professionals in the business and all kinds of enthusiasts, not just for artists. And we invite you to join us there so that you can stay tuned in to what programs we'll be doing next. I imagine we will also be doing the gallery tours again next year. And we hope to be doing more podcasts with you, Scott. So please visit us and follow what we're doing. We have Facebook, Instagram, all those wonderful social media outlets as well. What's the URL for your website? www.sandhillartists.com. That's artist plural. Excellent. Thanks, Bob. Any uh, parting words, Bob? I would say that what was most compelling to me when I first moved here and continues to become even more compelling the more I get into it is the artistry and, and integrity of the craft artists in the area. To stand in front of the Mona Lisa is one experience. To be holding a wooden bowl in your hands whose contours and colors are just absolute perfection. You have a very human touch there and and you can feel a real connection to the life of somebody who would spend the hours or weeks that it took to make this this thing you can hold in your hands or this thing that you can cover your child with when they're sleeping and they're and they're chilly this whole world of craft art has really opened my eyes i'm always fascinated by the things that people do to make a living and the things that they do to express themselves and to find it in these these small things that originate out of people's lives and, and reflect some part of their of their lives. It's the essence of your not real art concept. This is real art, but it's art that you can really see another person's life in it. And many of these lives are wonderfully different from ours. And I think that in a time like this, to be able to see the humanity of people whose background is is completely different from your own. That's a great thing, and I wish we could do it much more often. Yeah, thanks for that, Bob. That's great. I look forward to holding one of those bowls in my hands soon. I will be planning a trip out at my earliest convenience here. Louise and Bob, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having us. We enjoyed it. This was great. Thanks for the opportunity, Scott. The pleasure was all mine. And will you do me a favor? Will you promise to come back? Oh, yes, absolutely. Anytime. Fantastic. Well, thanks to all, and you guys have a wonderful afternoon. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld.